Well, good morning, Harvest Community Church. It is great to be with you. As Brian said, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the teaching elders in our presbytery. For the last 12 years, I've served at Grace Church in Fremont. Uh, if you don't know where Fremont is, if you go north till you smell it and east till you step in it, you're in Fremont. Or excuse me, west till you step in it, you're in Fremont. Uh, we are the meatpacking capital of the state. If you can process it, we have it in Fremont. That's our claim to fame. So uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, I've, as I think about the 12 years that we've been uh, spent planning Grace Church and that we've been there, uh, I'm really grateful for this congregation and for the ways that our paths have crossed over the last 12 years. I was thinking as we were driving in, I think the last time I was here uh, was when Andrew was being installed. And so was grateful to be with you on that evening, grateful to be with you this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Psalm 47, or your phone, your tablet, however it is that you access God's Word. We want to look this morning at Psalm 47. A good friend in our presbytery once said that preaching the Psalms is like explaining a joke. And I found it to be true. It's usually the 10 weeks that we do in the summer at Grace Church in the Psalms. It's usually the most difficult preaching that I do every year. And we've been doing it now for 10, 10 years. One of the challenges when it comes to reading and understanding the Psalms is that we don't read a lot of poetry anymore. We listen to a ton of poetry, but we don't necessarily read it. We listen to things like, you only need a roof when it's raining, you only need a fire when it's cold, you only need a drink when the whiskey is the only thing that you have left to hold. The Gospel according to Chris Stapleton. We listen to poetry all the time, but we don't necessarily read it. So, hear God's word this morning as we give attention to Psalm 47. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, thanks so much for this particular congregation. And thank you for Andrew and for his willingness to serve Grace Fremont this morning. And Father, we pray that this would be a time of mutual edification, that your people would be encouraged where needed, and that we would be convicted where needed. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start this morning with a quick survey. 
If you like being told what to do, please raise your hand. Now, there's always a couple people, so it's okay. We're not going to judge you. I mean, we are, but we're not going to do it out loud. Yeah, see, most of us really don't like being told what to do, and that makes sense. I mean, we're Americans. Our nation was birthed out of an act of revolution. We really don't want other people telling us what to do. And yet, Psalm 47 begins with a command. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Now, those aren't suggestions. Those aren't recommendations. And no, friends, those are commands. The sons of Korah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us what God demands of his creation. And by the way, please note, these commands aren't just for Christians. These commands are for everyone, everywhere. Everyone is to acknowledge who God is. Everyone is to acknowledge the fact that God is the creator, he is the most high, and he rules and reigns over all that he has made. Now, I realize that idea is probably equally troubling for some of you. And just like you don't, being, don't like being told what to do, you also don't like the idea that God is going to demand something from his creation. The idea that God would demand anything of us seems a bit patriarchal. It seems a bit oppressive. There is a school of thought within the contemporary American church that tells us that God exists for us to give us what we need or want or desire. You can have your best life now. And God wants to be your partner in that endeavor. Now, please understand, that's an entirely heretical way to think. It's nowhere in the scriptures, and yet, it's out there. It might help us then as we think about God demanding something from us to keep in mind that we're not the original audience of this particular psalm. The world inhabited by the Israelites was a world in which folks would go to great lengths to know just what their gods expected of them. The ancients looked for omens. They read tea leaves. They threw bones on the ground in hopes that somehow the gods would uh, reveal to them and let them know what it is that they wanted from them. If you've read the Odyssey or the Iliad, then you know just how serious this business was and what great lengths were gone to in order to discern the will of the gods. Friends, the good news for us this morning is that we don't have to guess. God couches his command in an invitation and tells us exactly what he demands from his creation. He wants us to worship him. And he grounds our worship not in our feelings, but in fact. God does not trust our feelings to generate worship. Rather, he gives us fact. Now, if you got the sheet outside that has the sermon outline, you see there's something called the big idea. And the big idea, uh, hopefully, in one sentence, is what the sermon is about. And here's the big idea for this morning. The big idea is that we need to acknowledge the glorious victory and sovereign reign of God. 
We need to acknowledge the glorious victory and sovereign reign of God. But what does that acknowledgement look like? It's more than just sort of, you know, the kind of head bob that we do or the kind of hand. No, this is a particular kind of acknowledgement. In Psalm 47, we learn that there are two ways that we ought to acknowledge the glorious victory and sovereign reign of God. The first one is this. We're told to fear the great king. We're told to fear the great king. Now, verse 1 is a command, but it's couched in an invitation. God in his graciousness, God in his mercy, God in his love is commanding the nations and letting them know what it is that he demands of them. And in giving this, the command in this way, he's inviting not just Israel, not just the church, not just those who would call themselves Christians, he's inviting everyone everywhere to respond rightly to who he is. This isn't just for those who claim to be Christians. This isn't just for those who claim to be part of the people of God. No, it is a command that's couched in an invitation for all peoples and for all nations. Now, we like that. We like the idea that God has a heart not just for those who call themselves his people, but that God has a heart for the nations, that God has a love and a care and a concern for everyone everywhere and for all that he has created. But what we don't like comes in verse 2. Why are we to clap our hands? Why are we to shout to God with loud songs of joy? We have that wonderful conjunction in verse 2, 4. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. Now, there are some traditions, I grew up in such a tradition, in which we tried to explain away the word fear. We would say that fear, what the psalmist really means is that we should have great respect or great reverence for God. There's a word for people who think that. Those are people who have never taken Hebrew. There are very different Hebrew words for respect and reverence as opposed to fear. The word that is used here is the Hebrew word for fear. God to whom we are to clap our hands and shout to him with loud songs of joy, is a God who we rightly acknowledge by fearing him. Now, not only did I grow up in a tradition that didn't really like the concept of fear, but I also grew up in a tradition that said, well, okay, that's fine for the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, well, not to be irreverent, but God mellows out. God has somewhere along the way, I guess, switched to decaf. God had a child, and it mellowed him out. Well, keep your finger in Psalm 47, but turn with me, if you would, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, for we're going to see that this rightful response to God of fear isn't just something that happens in the Old Testament. But rather, we're going to see that in the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, fear was the appropriate response. So in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, 
Let me just sort of preview what's going on here. It's a story that many of us know well. It's about Jesus and the Gerizim demoniac. It's a man who's filled not with, uh, possessed not just with one demon, but with a multitude of demons. And so uh, when Jesus asks their name, we're told in verse 30, legion, for we are many. And so Jesus commands them into a herd of pigs. They rush off the cliff. They fall into the ocean. And now all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the swine herders who were afraid of this guy run back into the city, and they're going to let people know what's going on. So let's pick it up in verse 34. And as I read, I want you to note how much being afraid or great fear figures into this particular story about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It is a strange concept to think that joyful worship and fear somehow go together. But they do. And the reason they do, and the reason fearing the Lord God Almighty is an appropriate response, is that we are reminded in texts like Luke 8, and we are reminded in texts like Psalm 47, that we are not in charge. We like to think we are, but we're not. I love the words of Michael Horton in a recent book that he wrote called Reclaiming Our Sanity. If you've not read it, I would commend it to you. Horton says this, fear really is worship. We fear what we believe is ultimate, what we think has the last word in our lives. Let me read that again. Fear really is worship. We fear what we believe is ultimate, what we think has the last word in our lives. So, let's go from preaching straight into meddling. And let me ask you this question, what's your greatest fear? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? We're often told, and this is true, that part of uh, growing in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that our, our loves, the things that we love, become ordered rightly. Well, friends, I would want to suggest to you as well that part of growing in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means that our fears are also going to be ordered rightly. Not just the things that we love, but what we fear is going to be ordered rightly. Uh, my family's here with me this morning, and uh, our, our kids aren't little. I see a bunch of little kids, and I remember when ours are that age, and all I can think is, you know what? Uh, it's going to get harder. Right now, you're only tired. It does get harder. 
And as I think about parenting, as I think particularly about parenting young adults, I've come to realize uh, parenting really is an exercise in fear management. Right when they're little, you're afraid that you're going to break them. That somehow when you throw them up in the air and you miss and they fall on the ground, one, you pray their mother never finds out. And two, you pray that you didn't actually, like, like that the stutter will go away at some point, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> Amy Reed knows my children, so she knows why that's very funny. Uh, but then as they get older, there's a whole different set of fears. What are they going to do with their life? What if your daughter wants to date And what if, I love how Steve Martin put it in Father of the Bride, you worry about her meeting a, uh, guys, and then all of a sudden it changes, and now you're afraid of her meeting the guy. Right? Because I've been the guy. You are afraid that your kids are never going to leave, and then you're afraid they're never going to come back. What's your greatest fear? Acknowledging the glorious victory and sovereign reign of God means that our primary fear is Him. And we learn then to prioritize that because God is indeed ultimate. God is in control. God is in charge. And we are not. Secondly, we learn that the way that we acknowledge God is we praise the God who sovereignly reigns. We praise the God who sovereignly reigns. In verse 5, we're told God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of the trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. Now, one of the ways that Hebrew poetry is different from our poetry, of course, is that it doesn't rhyme. And that the author of Hebrew poetry often uses repetition to tell us what's important. And so just in case we missed how many times he tells us to sing praises in verse 6, it's four times. Again, in verse 7, we're going to be told that we are to sing praises to God. But why? Again, the conjunction 4 in verse 7 grounds or gives us the reason why God is worthy to be praised. We're to sing praises to God because He is the King of all the earth. It gets expounded for us in verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Friends, those are lofty claims. And those are lofty claims if you watch the news. For if you watch the news or read the newspaper, there is much in our world that would seem to argue that if someone is reigning, it's surely not God. Or whoever's in control, they're not good. And what really seems to be reigning is a kind of chaos and a kind of insanity. But the idea that God 
reigns seems terribly foreign to us. And it's stunning that in verse 8, the psalmist is going to emphasize God's reign over the nations by telling us that God sits on his holy throne. Two things that we would normally think would not go together. But we need to stop and understand what a loaded and a rich tradition it is in the scriptures when we're told that God is seated. In Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm, when David tells us, he asks the questions, why do the nations rage? Why do the rulers plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed? And then he tells us that he who sits in the heavens laughs. In other words, for all the plotting and for all the conspiring and for all the treason that the nations and the rulers of the nations would uh, utter up in their own hearts against God, God is not concerned by it in the least bit. He's not threatened by it. In Daniel chapter 7, that wonderful vision in which we're introduced to that glorious biblical theme, namely that God's Messiah is going to be the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, there are these four grotesque creatures that come up out of the ocean. They are ascending to the heavens, and they are seeking to overthrow God. And we're told that God, the Ancient of Days, takes his seat. In other words, God is not threatened at all by these four grotesque creatures. He's not threatened at all by the chaos that the sea represents. There is no way that anyone anywhere is going to dethrone God from being God. God is not going to be taken from his throne. There will be no coup. There will be no revolution. There will be no declaration that God is dead and God go, oh, well, yeah, I guess you're right. No, he reigns. And his power and his might are such that nothing that his creation does to seek to rebel against him will ever be a threat against him. Now, I realize there are probably some of you here this morning for whom those aren't reassuring words. Uh, those are words that mock. Because it doesn't feel like God is sovereignly reigning or in control. Maybe racism is reigning. Maybe hatred is reigning. We have a sweet lady in our congregation who uh, just underwent some surgery for cancer. And at this moment, you would understand if Duane and Fran would say that it feels like cancer is reigning in their life. Or there's just a kind of general madness. There's a lack of couth good southern word lack of couth in the world well friends this is the point in which as god's people we need to heed the advice the advice of the doctor i don't mean me 
The doctor was a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of my heroes in the faith. He can be a hero safely because he's been dead for 42 years. I would commend that men who are dead make safe heroes. But the last 15 years of evangelicalism has taught us nothing. It should teach us that we're better off with heroes who are dead. We don't find out that they had a thing for massage parlors or they had anger issues at that point. Lloyd-Jones began his career as a medical doctor. He was a Welshman. He became the assistant to Lord Horder. Lord Horder was the personal physician to the royal family in England. So had Lloyd-Jones stayed in his chosen profession, uh, he would have become the personal physician to the royal family. But God called him into ministry, and so Lloyd-Jones left a very lucrative medical practice on Harley Street in London, and instead went to uh, an out-of-the-nowhere coal mining town in Wales, and there began his ministry. Lloyd-Jones has written a singularly helpful book called Spiritual Depression. Again, that's another book I would commend to you. And in the midst of his book, Spiritual Depression, Lloyd-Jones reminds us of this glorious truth. There are moments in which we need to preach to ourselves and stop listening to ourselves. There are moments in which we need to preach to ourselves and stop listening to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves that our God is seated. We need to preach to ourselves that our God reigns. We need to preach to ourselves that there is coming a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee. Not Christian knees. Not Republican knees. Not Trump-loving knees. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the psalmist means when he says at the end of verse 9, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. When you defeated an enemy in battle, you took their shields and you hung it in your great hall. Or in the case of Israel, you would hang it in the temple as a sign, as a declaration that you had defeated that enemy. Well, friends, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of God's enemies have been defeated. He is highly exalted. This morning, we're going to partake together of a tangible reminder of God's sovereign reign. For this table, though it looks really humble, though it doesn't look like much, this table is actually a foretaste of a table that's yet to come. In Revelation chapter 19, we're told of the greatest feast in the history of the cosmos. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And there, God's going to call his people together, and he's going to serve them a feast of rich wine. He's going to serve them a feast of just luscious and lavish food. All those who know the Lamb, or who more importantly are known by the Lamb, are going to be invited. Those who were once not God's people, who are now called God's people, they're going 
to be there. And it's going to be the greatest wedding feast in the history of the universe. And the table that we have before us this morning reminds us of that table that is yet to come. The table this morning declares that God is our God and we are His people, but it also declares that He reigns because the table points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The table tells us of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. The table reminds us that having completed the work that God had for him, Christ uh, was, uh, not only died and was resurrected, but he's now ascended, and guess what he's doing? <laughs> he's sitting. He's sitting. So friends, this morning, we can acknowledge who God is we can acknowledge rightly through fear and through worship that he reigns, that he sits on his holy throne. And there is a great feast to which his people are invited that is yet to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you now for this gift of the table. Uh, we pray that uh, as we come to the table, uh, that we would indeed be strengthened, that as we spiritually partake of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would indeed encourage and strengthen us for the living of these days. For we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.